Hi, my name is Sean Hall. I'm the Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. Our mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. You can find out everything there is to know about the VBC on our website, www.veteransbreakfastclub.org. Welcome to VBC's sixth episode of Lioness, the origin story. And thank you so much if you've listened this far. Uh, we truly appreciate you coming and uh, being a part of this uh, amazing experience that we've had thus far in the series. Uh, this is a special podcast dedicated to telling the history of the Lioness vets from their point of view. Over the course of the series, we're going to cover everything from Team Lioness, if you've joined from the beginning, up until uh, female engagement teams and into the cultural support teams, which we're going to get to in this episode. And our goal is to shed light on this unexplored history. Joining me is filmmaker and writer Daria Summers. In 2008, Daria Summers, along with her filmmaking colleague Meg McClagan, released Lioness, a documentary that revealed the history of a group of women support soldiers who went to Iraq in 2003 as mechanics, clerks, and engineers, but ended up serving as the original Lioness soldiers. Although the Lioness's mission was to defuse tensions with Iraqi women and children, they ended up fighting in some of the bloodiest battles of the Iraq war, despite the combat exclusion policy. Joining us usually is also Army veteran and original Lioness Shannon Morgan. She is out sick today, but she will be back with us in our next episode, so more of Shannon to come. Uh, thank you so much again to our audience for joining us. Please like, share, subscribe uh, any way you can to connect with us. Get the word out about Lioness. We've had a lot of really great reactions to this podcast, and we're so thankful. Uh, Daria, I'd love to hand it over to you. Thank you again for being a part of this. Well, thank you so much, Sean. And Today, I'm delighted to say we have with us uh, Chris Tremblay. Uh, she is served as a member of a cultural support team in Afghanistan. Originally from California, Chris joined the Army in 1995 and served as a truck driver with the Army Reserve 729 Transportation Company. In 1996, she deployed to Hungary with the 811 Ordnance Company. When her tour ended, she returned to civilian life to pursue her education. However, in 2004, she re-enlisted, this time with the West Virginia Army National Guard. In 2005, she deployed to Iraq, stationed in the Balad region of the volatile Sunni Triangle. She ran civil military operation missions. Much like the earlier Lioness teams, Chris assisted all male infantry units during searches and other interactions with Iraqi women. In 2010, while attending Officer Candidate School, she took a break to train as an Army Cultural Support Team member. A new program, Cultural Support Teams were specifically designed to be all-female teams capable of deploying with U.S. Special Operation Forces in Afghanistan. Attached to either Special Forces, Rangers, or Green Berets, the CST's mission was to interact with women and children offer medical and humanitarian assistance, conduct search and seizures when necessary, and gather intelligence. Chris served two full eight-month tours as a CST member in Afghanistan attached to Special Forces Operational Detachment Alphas. Her work centered on village sustainability operations, which I'm sure we will hear more about as we talk about um, her tours. After returning home, Chris completed her officer candidate school and was commissioned as an MP. During the remainder of her 22 years in the Army, she became the senior instructor at West Virginia's officer candidate school. Drawing on her experience as a CST member, Chris contributed her knowledge to the integration of women into combat roles, 
worked with Congress on the defense authorization priorities for women, and more recently, on post-combat mental health care for female veterans. Today, Chris lives on an 11-acre farm in Ohio, how lucky you are, works as a police officer, plays the occasional game of rugby, and spends her free time teaching tricks to her two adorable pigs. Chris, welcome. We're honored to have you here with us today. Morning. Um, hope I got most of that right. <laughs> um, the only thing is I only did one tour uh, with the CST program. It was CST2. Okay, CST2. So when you said CST2, I thought that meant two tours, but it was, so you were in the second wave, so to speak. Yes, ma'am. Okay, got that. Duly noted and duly corrected. Um, so Chris, help me set the stage. Um, it's around, it's 2010, you're in officer candidate school and you hear about the Army's cultural support team program and it interests you. How is it presented and what intrigued you about it? Well, at the time I was working full-time with the pre-deployment training and assessment teams, prepping any units going out of West Virginia for their deployments. I came into my desk and I found a packet on my desk for the new CST program. Um, kind of pushed it to the side, started my day, came back at lunch and found a folder on my desk that when I opened it up, it was for the new CST program, promptly followed by a couple of emails and a visit from my boss. Everybody was excited about it, but West Virginia is a super small National Guard. At any given time, there's only about 4,500 of us. So for the state to get a candidate, we have very few soldiers to start with, fewer females yet, and fewer females who would have been eligible from there. Um, three of us looked at it, two of us tried out, one of us made it, which was me, and it was timing-wise about as bad as it could have gotten because since I was already in officer candidate school, they didn't have to let me come back to it. Um, particularly at my age, because I was right at the upper age cap for officer candidate school. And we had this great officer who was in charge of the MPs at the time, uh, Teresa James, who came to me and said, if you want to do this, I will find a way to get you back in the program. But it's too important. If I was 10 years younger, I would do it. You have to go. And that's actually what got me back into officer candidate school is when I did my exit interview, they said, you know, why would you risk not commissioning? I'd been in the army 16 years at the time. It was really my last chance. And my answer was, why would you want an officer who would turn down a program like this? Why would you want that person as a leader? And that was what they actually quoted to me when I came back, when they let me back in. So it was pretty cool. So the key thing from, from, if I'm hearing you correctly, the key thing, uh, like the big attraction was uh, that this was extremely unique opportunity. And I'm assuming that was because you would be um, working with special forces or, and it was a kind of a, uh, an opportunity that hadn't existed before. Oh, absolutely. Um, I was part of CST2. And the way our progression worked was 
CST1 was really a transition from the FETs into the CST program. They didn't get a whole lot of specialized training. Uh, they did get a pretty good assessment. CST2 was the first time that some of this training would be available to females. Um, I had one of our majors go and see it, and he was so impressed at the level of physicality required and how hard they were pushing the soldiers to make sure they were getting the information they needed. Um, and again, I just both as a person and as a state, we couldn't turn down the opportunity to be able to go and get that training, to be able to get involved with that program in a way that had never happened before. Now, was this all happening at Fort Liberty, formerly known at that time as Fort Bragg? Oh, no, ma'am. Um, the assessment selection and training for us happened at Fort Bragg. But particularly with CST2, over half of us were National Guard or Reserves. So we were at our home duty stations, went to assessment and selection at Fort Liberty, came back home, and then jumped back out for the training. So there was a lot of back and forth. And I'll say that was one of the problems for a lot of us was all of our pay, all of our admin still went through whatever your home unit was. So if you were a National Guardsman, they were handling all of that active duty travel that sometimes got complicated since we were working with special operations. Right. So on so what you're saying is the the training and the assessment that did happen at Fort Liberty slash the old name Fort Bragg at that time. However, you were going back and forth. You weren't you weren't just suddenly removed and transferred. You were going back and forth. And what does that mean that you sort of lost? I mean, was it was, was there confusions about pay or reimbursement and that kind of thing? Um, I got lucky. I got turned over to kind of one of our state gurus. Um, we have the second and 19th special forces group um, that has a unit in West Virginia. And they immediately took me under their wing um, before I ever went to assessment and selection. They gave me two of their guys who prep their own candidates to work with me on my boots and my running and some skills that I should have before I went. Um, those basic special operation rules of, you know, never be late, last or light, never quit, make them kick you out. Like all of those basic fundamental things that they send their trainees with, these guys prepped me for. Um, they made sure their admin got with the person who was handling my money and travel because they already knew how to do it. Um, we had some candidates who they didn't get paid for four, five, six months because their states didn't know how to process things properly. And I, I was fortunate. I wasn't one of those people. Wow. And so this is just so fascinating. Um, was, was the program, obviously it was known it was made known within, um, you know, as, as they had to reach out to find the right candidates, um, it was it was made known. But when you were at Fort Liberty uh, during your training, was it sort of secretive at all? Was it open? Were you training with special forces uh, folks at one point? 
uh, everything was open. Assessment and selection is on some of the same facilities as the guys do it. Um, as far as on classroom, we got resources. Um, everything went through the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center. So we were getting some of the best resources when it came to um, some of our training. They would get us the same trainers for the same skill sets as the males had. They brought in guys who were on home station, who were part of ODAs to be able to kind of familiarize us with what their expectations would be and how to fit into their teams. But the running joke was often we were building an airplane mid-flight. When they took us into training, they weren't sure how to do the training. Um, a significant portion of CST2 was doing training and then giving them an assessment of the training we just did so they could prep it for the next group in the pipeline. Wow. So uh, you were, you were, they were learning on you as they went. They absolutely were. And I mean, in some cases it was awesome because we were doing things they didn't know we needed to know. Um, so a significant part of the CST program has to do with being able to talk to people who maybe don't want to talk with you um, and getting them to act on your behalf. So one of the things my class would do was what we called CST games which was those of us who weren't naturally people person, we would go out to a mall or a shopping center and go to those places that had free samples and compete to see who could get the best free sample for the day or who could get a clerk to do something without them knowing it, like put their hands up and turn around in a circle, but thinking it was part of the shopping process. So we were <laughs> learning some of those psychological skills from our sisters who were coming out of MISO and PSYOPs programs. Um, we were learning some of our fight training and tactical skills from some of our girls who had come off of Team Rock and different Gracie Jiu-Jitsu programs. Um, just everybody came into it with the idea of, we have no idea what we're doing, so we've got to do for each other. Okay, so let me get this straight, because this is utterly fascinating. You would part of uh your your practice because you know i know that in the in the notes and in some of the literature i've read uh you you know it says you were working on um you know on cultural differences and how how trying to uh sort of refine ways that you could draw out some of the uh afghan women and overcome cultural barriers but in terms of the interpersonal aspect of everyone sort of getting on the same page of how you can relate to other people. Uh, some of your training, uh, the lab work, so to speak, required going to shopping malls? No, it wasn't required by the program. It was things we no, put but... together to train those of our members who didn't already have those skills. Like at the oh, time, I... I wasn't a real people person and I okay. hadn't spent a great of time with a lot of women. So one of the places they loved to send me for free samples was Sephora's. So that I was having to interact in this really heavy female environment, addressing topics that I hadn't spent a lot of time with. 
so that I got those skills down to be able to translate in theater. And I'm assuming from the way that you're telling this that it actually made a difference. Oh my gosh, yes. Um, if you can walk into a high-end women's makeup shop in a pair of flip-flops, cut-off jeans, and a Jack Daniels hat and talk them into sending you home with $300 worth of free samples, you can go to any room in the world and move through that room. That's fantastic. One of the most great, great stories I've heard in terms of training um, and, and, and also how effective it was. Um, and so my, my next question is, um, from the time that you began training, uh, your CST training, how soon, how much time was it until you were like, okay, this is your team, you're flying out? So from the time we completed assessment and selection to the time we deployed was a little less than a year. A little less than a year. So the training was off and on while you were also continuing to do your regular job with the West Virginia National Guard? So the way it worked is they brought us in for assessment and selection. Um, we came in in two phases, the Garden Reserve phase, which was mine, and then they sent us home after they selected from our group, and then they brought in an active duty phase uh, selected from their group. Then they brought us back in and we went down to Benning to do that necessary pre-deployment things that are always required by First Army for people going in theater. Then they kicked us back right. home and then they brought us in and we did our assessment, uh, sorry, our training through SWIC. And so for that training through SWIC, we actually were in the schoolhouse um, we did combatives three days a week. We ran three days a week. We um, had individual classroom training on, um, picked up a little bit of Dari, a little bit of Pashtu, uh, cultural understandings, some Islamic background, understanding of the individual ethnic groups in Afghanistan, just all of that basic information while also working all the tactical information we would need to be able to incorporate with the teams well. So it just was all, all of that, all different um, sort of kinds of educational and preparation um, before uh, they sent you over. And so when did you go? So I went in 2011 um, and I'll say that training was really lucky for us because we were the first group, you know, out of those FETs, out of CST1, we were that first group who actually got the training that we needed to go into theater. Everyone before us, it's really amazing where we were able to see success because most of them were sent with a, hi, you're a girl, that's the requirement, please go here. Um, and they didn't get the training, they didn't get the prep work, they didn't get the information. They were just having to succeed out of their own skills that pre-existed. Why do you think they didn't get the training? Um, it Nobody thought of it or there was no time? Well, the programs were often ad hoc and there was always a belief that 
we just need this for right now, but it's not a thing we actually need. So it wasn't until those people were constantly providing successes, were constantly providing useful things that special operations stepped up and went, we want that, but we want it done right. Um, prior to that, a lot of those folks were associated with conventional units who weren't willing to think outside the box of if we had women directly working with our combat units, what would we do with them? And special operations with that natural skill they have of thinking outside the box went, okay, what would we do with them? And then how do we want them to be able to do that? How do we pre-program success just like we would with our male operators, with our you know, MISO folks, with our civil affairs folks? How do we create the best tool for us to use? What's interesting about what you're describing is that, so at this point, still 2010, the combat exclusion policy is still in place. You're not being assigned, you're being attached. And so there is, uh, there was a Marine we had on earlier who described it as, um, Sort of, you were, you, you know, half in and half out. They were still, they were always figuring how to use women and draw them further into, um, you know, the performance of whatever the mission was. But at the same time, you, it's like you could, they, nobody could ever admit that you had two feet in because of the combat exclusion policy. And so I'm getting some sense of that playing here as well. No, that was absolutely a thing. Um, as a matter of fact, there was, so Ashley White, which was the first CST um, to be killed in combat, died on CST2's tour. And there was a, a teetering moment where there were discussions of pulling us all out of the field because the congressional hearings would bring up the fact that she was in too much of a forward environment and too much of what would be considered a combat environment. So there was constantly a balance for us, um, particularly in reporting, to make sure that we weren't violating policy and where we were in forward operating environments that we were being very careful and aware how we were reporting those things back up. And as it was, we stayed in um, and the CST program went on for years and years after that. But there was that moment where the program almost died with Ashley. Yeah, that was completely tragic. And I know there was another uh, Jennifer Moreno, another CST um, uh, member who died. And that's very tragic. But it's it's also sort of, I imagine that had, some effect on the overall um, esprit de corps when you know that um, you're sort of so on on the fence, teetering in those moments, the whole program. Oh, absolutely. Probably not, not good for morale. Um, surprisingly, it it turned out to be one of the things that solidified our position. 
So one of the big differences between working with some of the more conventional forces and working with special operations is once the special operations community has accepted you as someone they're working with, they treat you very much like one of their own. And as far as they were concerned, one of their own had something happen to them. And so we saw people who maybe hadn't connected with us as team members as much step up and work to integrate us better into their teams um, and really convey a respect to us about our teammates. And that just made a huge difference in how the rest of our tour went. Um, I, I actually worked with two different teams and my split happened right about that time. I went from my first team to my second team. And when I got to my second team, there was almost an attitude of, hi, welcome to the party. And by the way, we're in support of you because we know you have work to do for Ash. Wow. Um, so I want to just uh, backtrack a little bit um, so we don't, uh, I'm trying to kind of sort of create the full narrative here but so after your training you're you're ready to go over to afghanistan and are you are people assigned teams like in other words it says cultural support teams how many were there and were you assigned with a number of people and then you were always with that team or when you went over there did that happen and did it change so and then there, what was it like there was a split for us um the direct action girls got split off and they worked in larger team elements based around what their ranger regiment was doing um okay. as far as the vso teams we got split up in two man teams so one officer one nco um and then we would be directly assigned to an oda so, for example, when I was at my first VSO site, it was myself, my partner, and one interpreter with that ODA. Um, at some point, I had a female intel analyst magically pop up. She was given to us just because it was easier to integrate her with us. Um, and then... Uh, like I say, at one point, I did have a change in both my team and my partner, um, but I was the exception. I think there were only two of us who changed partners uh, for my entire CST teams. Okay, um, Chris, I'm going to ask you, um, I know that the, the Special Forces, um, the Operational Detachment Alphas, uh, I mean, people hear the words like, you know, Special Forces, Rangers, SEAL teams. Can you just tell me what are the operational detachment alphas specifically? So within any given special uh, special forces group, like, you know, again, I, West Virginia has 2nd and 19th group. They have operational detachment alphas, which are their forward teams. You have support teams that stay in the rear. They handle comms. They um, provide support they provide logistics they do all of those things then the alpha team is the actual functional unit that works on the ground 
So it's it in a way it's the most forward you can get. Uh, for that individual group, yes. So it okay. Uh, saying operational detachment alpha is kind of the equivalent of the actual functional team. Uh, it's usually one of each of the special operations skill sets put together as a a functional unit. And can you can you describe, uh, for instance, so you you get to Afghanistan, you have your 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 team member, um, you're there. Um, what's the first mission you go on, and what's it like? And where are you? So we started off um, all the way up by the northern border in an area called Tashkazar. Um, and what our team immediately did is look at our individual backgrounds and see how to best leverage us to build village stability. So in our case, my first partner had a degree in education, as did I. So they said, okay, well, propose us a program that will allow you to integrate with the local population, begin developing relationships, and begin developing information flow. Having been a teacher, I put together a teacher's education program, reached back to my home university in West Virginia, had them send me materials, and we went out and taught local teachers how to provide an American-style education system in a school that involved chalkboards leaning up against trees. This was awesome because it meant that I then had access to every little local village that had any kind of a school. And everywhere I had access to, my team had access to. Um, it gave me an opportunity to build relationships with people so that if there were threats in the area, those people felt comfortable coming and telling me so that my team could react before an incident as opposed to after. So in a way, <clears throat> not only, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, in your mission, you wanted to develop a sense of investment in the people, but through your work in education in the schools with the children and the other teachers and probably their parents and mothers, they were invested in you doing that because that improved things. Was there Absolutely. a sense of that? So on, on my second location, I, through a series of unique events, got the opportunity to actually pair with a master teacher with investment from the Ministry of Education in Kabul so that we were going on site and they were sending me teachers from all over the province. When I did that, they would call me or contact me days in advance and say, hey, when you walk here, here are the roads you shouldn't take. Here are the areas you should avoid. Here's who doesn't like this. Um, they were actively invested in me being safe because I was providing a service to them. Um, and that would translate for my team. So if my team wanted to go to Village A and I called ahead to Village A and said, hey, I'm going to come out and check on your schools today, and I got that through the Minister of Education, then as my team passed through, a lot of times I would get phone calls about those potential threats 
before we ever encountered them. So it just gave the team an additional tool to be able to navigate their space. It sounds like in the process um, and in the, while these communities were trying to keep you safe and the educational, because they valued the educational opportunities and input that you were bringing, you actually got just in by telling you where it was safe or who didn't like you and who did, you would then get actionable kind of intelligence. Absolutely. Um, the CSTs who went on the VSO mission were really in a great place to work that VSO concept. So village stability operations are focused on security, governance, and development. Just by virtue of if one of us could provide a service to the community and integrate in that way, it meant we increased security for both our team and the village. It allowed us to interact with local governments to increase their services and to increase development through whatever our programs were backing. So like I assisted, um, Women for Afghan Women, which was a women's group in the area who were dealing with battered women. They actually had a battered women's shelter. By me being able to work directly with them, I was able to foster women who were actually assisting us in multiple other development and stability levels. So it, it became this kind of a synergistic force where I could do two or three things at the same time just by having a practicable skill. Um, and we didn't all do it through education. We had one girl who was a, uh, a professional hairdresser and makeup artist. That's what she did. We had a girl who was a, a cheerleader. She worked for the NFL. She was partnered with the girl who was good at makeup. And those two ran beauty programs that allowed them to integrate into the community and develop those relationships based on their skills. Um, we had someone who was a brilliant mechanic. She was able to integrate and assist in some of the construction areas to do what she did. At one point, they brought in a third group vet and I had grown up on a farm. So we went out and ran vet caps and it let me meet the local farmers and have them tell me what was going on in their area while I was worming their sheep. That, that was one of the big things that the CSTs did was create programs to gather information and increase local stability. It sounds to me like you just really <clears throat> integrated yourselves through sort of the individual backgrounds and talents and abilities that as as women you just and as individuals you had and you capitalized on those to work within the community and create certain bonds. Absolutely. How One of the biggest indicators of our success was the creativity of the team we were attached to. So we would show up with these great briefings of here are our military skill sets. And um, most of the teams had no idea what to do with 
I've just been given an extra MP and, you know, a, a file clerk. What, what do I do with that? And if they got stuck in that box, the team was unsuccessful. If, however, like the ODAs I was attached to, I showed up and said, hey, I'm an MP and, you know, my partner's a medic. Okay, cool. What should you do for our team? And if you asked us that question, we could look at the environment and really take some of those same outside the box skills that are so unique to the special operations community and run with it. And if they let us, we could do those things for them. If they got stuck with you're a medic, you should go do band-aids, then we weren't as useful to them because that's not what we were made to do. Right. No, I get it. But the, um, I guess when the women who were serving as CSTs revealed that, uh, you know, whatever their MOS was as a service members, oh, that's, but that previous as, as a civilian, they'd done hair and makeup or they, um, you know, had, uh, been a cheerleader or they, you know, they'd had that kind of background for people, when people would mention those, I guess it was among the women, among the CST teams where they used that kind of background creatively, right? Yes, ma'am. That, that, that didn't happen at the planning tables with the guys, I'm assuming. No. Well, so when we were in training, one of the things they talked to us about is how historically, special operations teams look at what individual skills and advantages they have and how they can leverage them for a unique approach to a mission because okay. if doing it the way the army has always done it worked then conventional forces could do it part of the special operations concept is that by with and through the local population concept and so that means you have to see how your how you can naturally integrate with the local population to accomplish the goal because you're not talking a 150 person unit you're talking a 6 man 12 man team so it's a different concept and us not knowing any better when they told us that in training we believed it and ran with it we're like okay well we should do the same thing right because it becomes very personal because it's a small team. Absolutely. Now, how did you, what, I'm, I'm curious, um, through your own experience, you know, what kind of bonds or friendships, um, and to the extent that, that you know, it, it, you could, um, you had the time to do this, but just the bonds did you create with Afghan women? Did you come to know any? Um, I did. I did. I So I got the opportunity to both work with some of the nicest people who were just genuinely wonderful humans who shared their family with you. And it was cute. CSTs always had the best food because the ladies would always bring us the best snacks. But I also got to meet some of the probably one of the scariest women I will ever meet in my entire life. Um, 
she had been involved in every large political movement in Afghanistan within five years of me showing up. She ran the battered women's shelter. Her father had been a general. Um, and she walked around town with brightly dyed hair and nothing covering her head and nobody said anything. Mainly because I think they were afraid she would kill them. She was just an absolute force of nature. So you had to temper your relationships because those people who had significant access to you, a lot of times they had significant access to you because they were in their own right dangerous. And I, I right. will say she was she was an amazing human, but kind of terrifying all at the same time. She probably had to uh, behave a certain way to run. I mean, I just find it amazing to discover that someone was running a shelter for battered women all the way up there in that region. Yep. So she was out in Saripul province, and she was, again, just very closely politically affiliated. She had leveraged the ladies there to they manufactured random arts and crafts things that were sold so there was there was income involved um but i still to this day have no idea how she managed to do what she did um with the limited level of violence that often surrounded her hmm. because you would think that wow. if you had wives leaving their husbands in afghanistan that would become a, a whole family fight. And somehow it just didn't, which I think may speak to her being more formidable than even I knew. Right. And probably her lineage as the daughter of a general helped. And speaking of dangerous, how dangerous were these missions that your team was going on? You were able to get access to these, uh, these communities, um, but were these areas kinetic? And I'm trying to think about like, like the combat exclusion policy and women being sort of there was no real front line it seemed so how did you sort of navigate these areas that that could be quite dangerous without quite knowing what dangers await you so for my team because i primarily function in the north um we had a fairly good awareness of when we were going someplace potentially dangerous when we weren't and how to address that for some of the teams, particularly in the East and South, they were just in kinetic environments. Mm -hmm. So the assumption was anytime and all the time, a potential threat is possible. Um, I think the only time we really had a concerning environment, we had someone directly attack the um, site that we were located on. And there were some problems surrounding that. And that's because stateside, we had had a lot of anti-Afghan, anti-Muslim rhetoric. So this was right before we went, um, right before we closed out our VSO mission and kind of came back in. And of course, when we did, that was where you had the bombings all over uh, Afghanistan due to the Quran burnings in the U.S. So that was the very dovetail of my tour. But for the most part, threats were always, in my area, these really 
arbitrary things. Like I can remember going into a house with just myself, my partner, um, and two other individuals and the gentleman telling me that, well, we would kill you, but your team's up the block and they would probably level our house. So hello. Okay. Good to meet you. Hi. <laughs> and we had a great meeting and many good things came out of it. But it was this implied threat that often didn't materialize. Mm -hmm. Again, in the East and the South, it wasn't like that. They were very kinetic. You're on the border of Pakistan. You've got, you know, Pashtunistan area and, and the sensibilities that surround that. And I fortunately wasn't in that location. So, um, Chris, just to get a larger sense, so how long you did have a base camp up there where you could return to, am I right? So we had, um, we could go back to like Mazari Sharif if we needed resupply or materials. Um, in our okay. first location, we were uh, co-located on a fob with the Arbakai which is the Afghan local police, kind of. Um, and at our second location, we literally lived in a compound in the village. There were um, one platoon of infantry, my special operations team, um, the two CSTs, about five interpreters, and um, two civil affairs guys. Okay. Now, so, and this, this period that you were up there covered about eight months? Yes, ma'am. What was the hardest mission or the most, whether it was a singular mission or a very difficult period when conditions made it slightly harder? I think one of the great difficulties was that sometimes you would be gathering information from someone who, if the people they were speaking of put two and two together, you absolutely knew that that information would cause them to get killed. And you also knew you weren't going to remain there long enough to see if that's what happened or not. So you would receive actionable intelligence, push that back out so that your team could action it, knowing that at any given time, that could cause the person who gave you the information to be killed. And you would never know. There was no way. Would a person who was giving you that information generally be male or female or both? Generally, at least for my team, it was females. So that could not have been pretty if it went south for them. No, I would, I would suspect it wasn't. And it was always hard because the thing that made people likely to talk to you was their trust and confidence. And in part, the fact that they thought your presence there was increasing their safety. When in fact, the information they were giving you may be actually increasing their risk. And the way you're receiving the information is forming a relationship with them, building trust with them, you're talking about your family. They're talking about their family. You have all of those things that come to create that moment of trust. 
and then they're going to give you information that could result in their death. I can only imagine that must just have been uh, just sort of something heartbreaking in the sense that, you know, you knew that what the likelihood was, you knew what the chances were, there wasn't anything you could do about it, you just had to live with it. Well, and part of it was also thinking about advantages it created on the back end. So because we valued women in some of these communities, even if we increase the danger for some of the individual women, we often decrease the danger for the group as a whole because we created value for them. These were folks who the international community hadn't particularly valued. So there was no reason for their local men to value them when all of a sudden the fact that they were treating their women well, or in my case, they were using their women as educators, then got something for their community, which made those women have more value within their community. So it could be harmful for one, but help another 300. Would you say that um, the educational uh, materials, the action on education that you brought them, whether it was through teaching materials or teaching itself, was one of the most powerful sort of influencers in that regard? I know that the increased role of women in education really paid back in dividends. So in um, the Afghan pullout, where you had Afghan women who were suddenly scrambling to try and get out of the country because of the increased risk of, you know, the Taliban taking back over. The women who were most able to get out of the country on their own and find gainful employment and forward movement on their own were women who were coming out of educational communities. So I know I Got talked it. to a family and there were three women who were college educators there who actually were helping their father and brother who were manual laborers get out of the country because the women had the educational skills to write the letters asking for help. They knew how to communicate those things. They knew how to do the research which would allow them to transfer any credentials they had and earn new credentials in the countries they went to. Um, I know some of these women went specifically to Canada and England and were very able to transfer over some of their credentials. I had some come to the U.S. who, again, were able to use those to get into teaching at the community college level because of the way the community college degree requirements work. Well, that's really fascinating and um, very impactful. We're were there any women who you had actually met as the CST who you either heard about or knew made it out? Um, not my women personally. Um, I worked with right. multiple team members who helped their interpreters, the women who had helped us as interpreters, help their individual interpreters get out and really help those families who had helped us while we were in country. That's, that's really, um, it's amazing. And it's just amazing to hear you because like you were there, you participated 
narrate these experiences for us. I, I mean, it really means so much because, I mean, I think just for myself as someone who's reading the materials and talking to people who've talked, who know about all of this sort of secondhand, to hear it directly from you is um, just incredibly meaningful and eye-opening. And, and um, I want, I don't want to lose track though of asking about uh, how were you treated by whatever sections or the women in general treated who, who functioned as CSPs by the special ops. Um, now, you mentioned earlier that once they saw what the value was, or they saw that you were really sort of pulling your weight, so to speak, as part of the team, that special ops was like, no, she's one of us. Um, was that a gradual, was that automatic? Was there any resistance? Can you speak to that? There was absolutely resistance. Um, amongst our direct action girls, the biggest joke was, who has more value today, the dog from the canine team or the CST? Um, because when you're going out on these missions, you have limited space in your trucks, on your helicopter. And so it's, which search capacity do I need more today? Do I need that dog who can, you know, go through and use his nose? Or do I need this female who can go through and do the female search and talk to the women? Which one is more important? And because we are support units, we are functionally, which tool do you want to take with you that day? Um, those of us who were in the VSO settings, we showed up and I will tell you that many of the VSO teams thought they were getting an MP and a medic. Um, luckily my second team happened to be me and MP, um, coupled with a medic who was also a civilian emergency room nurse. So we happen to meet those requirements. But if you can imagine you think you're getting somebody whose specialty is security and then someone who can do medical treatments and you get a generator mechanic and, you know, a, um, a specialist in working in a warehouse, you don't know what to do with those tools. You don't have a warehouse and you already have a generator mechanic. So it took a lot for us to build those relationships with our teams and show them that, okay, MOS aside, here's the practicable skills we have either from our training that we already bring with us from the civilian side. Here's what we can do for you. And in a lot of cases, that took us actually coming to the meetings with intelligent plans and saying, I see you want to do A. Here's how I can support A. And here's how I can do that without you having to take resources away from your already important mission. So it sounds like you had to um, sort of go in and, and prove, demonstrate, convince that you were actually value added. Oh, absolutely. Um, one of the things that was sort of at the heart, particularly of CST2, was a speech Admiral McRaven had put out about how when you send a team into combat, you don't send them all in with the same kind of weapon. You don't send everyone in with an M16. You don't send everyone in with an M9. 
there's rules for that 50 cal, for that 249, for that M16, and each of those tools can provide a specific outcome. Um, he argued that we should use soldiers the same way. Make sure we have those right tools that can do the job the most effectively. And just like the introduction of the new weapon system, where you really have to sell the abilities of the weapons and show how they can be used. So with new personnel, you had to show the ability of that personnel and show how it could be used. And the ODAs that were willing to take the time to listen to that, when coupled with teams who knew how to present that, got great results. If it broke down on either the hearing side or the presenting side, your results went down. So in this, in just in this compacted time that the CS teams were operating, which was from about 2010, I guess, to 2014, um, there are a lot of lessons learned, a lot of things shown to be true that people probably thought, well, I didn't know it could work that way. Oh, absolutely. I have, um, I, I made note of something that uh, one of the policy briefs on CSTs, the after studies uh, that was done on women in international security. And they, they said, adding women CST to special ops opened up 70% of the population in terms of like information and access, giving them increased access to intelligence and understanding of the operations that they were, of the populations they were operating in. And everything you've said basically supports that. I mean, I can't measure the 70%, but if, there, if the policy brief is saying that, that sounds huge. So I'm guessing that in retrospect, you made a huge difference, the CST teams. Um. I, I know there were multiple times where we could see demonstrable impacts on the mission. Team would say, we want A, we would get them A, and the team could do what they wanted. Now, I have every faith, having worked with these guys, that they could have gotten the results in a different way. But they maybe couldn't <laughs> have gotten the results in a way that produced as good a result for as little cost or damage. And that was really what we were there to help with. Right. How many instances uh, did you find of where, did, or did you find that sometimes men would be more comfortable talking to you? The Afghan men would sometimes be more comfortable confiding in you or a, or a CST team member? rather than a male soldier? Oh, absolutely. Um, both in Afghanistan and particularly when I was in Iraq, my ability to gather information in casual conversation, particularly amongst very conservative Islamic men, was high. Because if you understand the cultural rules, you're able to um, use those to get information. And here's a perfect example. Uh, in, in Iraq, I had a group of men roll up to my gate that I needed to keep there for security reasons. I needed them not to leave, but I needed it not to be a fight. So I went and grabbed snacks. 
and I passed out those snacks. And because of cultural rules and because I was a woman giving them snacks, it would have been incredibly rude for them not to eat my snacks and drink the, the liquid I was giving them. I think I gave them water. Why I was doing that, I started talking to their leader and complimenting him and then complimenting his men in front of him, which meant he had to show me that gun that that guy had. And he had to tell me about that fellow's grandson because to not do that would have been insulting to his men. Um, some of those same rules applied in Afghanistan. If I understood the cultural waters in which I swam and I obeyed the rules, there were often times I could force the locals to obey those same rules. I'm sorry, but as, you, as you're describing that, um, I keep thinking back to, I mean, because to me, that's just like amazing. Like, Absolutely. I mean, it seems so it seems so simple, doesn't it, Sean? I'm sure it I'm was anything hearing... but, but yeah, it's uh, <laughs> uh, specifically well, just to learn the culture. It, yeah, but the idea that if you're with another group of human beings and you offer them food and drink, I mean, that's a kindness, that's like a peace offering, that's something, that's like a greeting that says, you know, I I accept you, I, I give you this offering. And, um, you know, and so for that moment, you don't know what will happen afterwards, but for that moment, you're in this ritual. Um, yep. And so I keep thinking back, Chris, to, uh, you know, everything you picked up as you were out at the mall, at Sephora, in terms of interacting with human beings. It's, it's anyway, your, your experiences are bookended by these in, incredible um sort of like learning and then enacting of what you learned um how was it when uh so how many missions um did you do you count that you went out on during your eight months mm. or did it not divide up like that it really didn't divide up like that. You you sort of had a weekly routine. So we would, you know, go on a foot patrol down to meet with the local police department, talk to them about training. We did some training missions for some of the local police women. We would go visit different schools. We would go run vet caps. And we could do nothing for three days. Or I could get up in the morning, we could do a foot patrol, I could be back in the afternoon and meet with a group of women for tea, and then have another meeting before bed. Like, it it really was this fluid, responsive situation. Um, down to, I remember one evening, we had all settled down. Um, I was getting ready to kind of go to the gym and wrap up for the day. We got a call from um, a local important individual inviting us for dinner. Five of us went down there, had dinner with him, and it was able to produce significant results for something that the team had been working on for months just because we could go down and have dinner at someone's house. Turns out his daughter wanted to grow up to be a teacher, and he wanted to put her in a room with us so we could introduce her to the Minister of Education. 
there was no prep, there was no warning, and it wasn't a big deal. But it produced a result because we were in the right place at the right time. Right, and you had you had already uh, accrued some identity as having value for that purpose. You had built up traction and credibility with the community. Oh, absolutely, and everyone talks about everything. Um, right. I was unaware of how many people knew we were there and what we were doing, and it would produce both good and bad results. I hit my first uh, location, was there a week, and they had sent eight women to Pakistan to learn to be suicide bombers so that they could specifically target my team and blow it up. I got to my next location, had been there um, less than a month, had a random woman walk up, knock on the door. She was an American woman who had been moving in Afghan political circles for a year and had access to every single person I would want access to. She's the one who built my relationship with the Minister of Education. Neither of those were things I sought out or did anything to achieve other than exist and have locals talk about me. Wow, so this, I'm, I can only imagine that the special forces uh, guys that you would then return to and say, hey, I made this connection, this happened, that happened. They must have been, all right, this is great. They must have loved it. My team particularly, yes. I would come back and go, I got this thing. And, and it was cute because whether they necessarily believed it was actionable or they thought, okay, that might've been a crazy lady. They would say, okay, do something with us let us know what it's going to produce. And then it was my job to take that and go come up with a plan and begin to action it. Um, not every CST team had an ODA who was willing to give them that freedom. Um, I just, I fell in with a good team, super open-minded, uh, particularly the alpha. He had, he had not had a lot of experience with women before. But his answer was, is I'll try anything that gets me results. We got him results. Right. He ran with it. Right. I love that you said that because, um, I, and I, I love that description of him because that is exactly what Colonel Brinkley in 2003, when they made the ad hoc deal to come up with the team lioness in Ramadi, it was like, we need to be able to use these women to accomplish the mission. And it yep. wasn't anything fancier than that. It was just boots on the ground. We, we want to complete the mission. We need these women. I got lucky. I worked on the um, Women's Combat Integration Handbook with the Army's G1. And we were discussing how to move women into combat arms once the removal of the combat exclusion occurred. And one of the things a lot of the men at the table said is, well, but I have a lot of guys who aren't gonna like this. I have a lot of guys who are gonna be upset. And my answer was, when we changed from the M14 to the M16, we had a lot of people who were upset. They didn't like the changeover. They made fun of the M16. 
but their feelings didn't matter as much as whether or not it was an effective combat tool. Mm-hmm. And so looking at it from the same way we look at everything else in the military, taking those female feelings out of it and really looking at what does this do for us financially, tactically, and functionally. And from that perspective, all of a sudden you see how you can use that new piece of equipment and why how you felt about having it isn't necessarily as important as what can you do with it. Right. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. When you're, um, I want to ask, when your eight months came to a close, now the the special ops that you were working with, their time there, did it? It didn't coincide. It wasn't eight months like yours, was it? Weren't they more three months or four months? So my team's dovetailed. That's why I switched. Um, the first team I was with had been there just a little bit longer than I had. I came in when they left, I rotated to another team that left just a little while after I did. Okay. So after the eight months, um, how was coming home? So I had a unique reintegration experience. Um, I actually flew back uh, two weeks early with another soldier to go to the Raven exercise out in California to help teach Marine special operations teams how to use Marine CSTs. Um, So we left theater, got back to Fort Bragg. We're at Fort Bragg like a week and then immediately flew to the desert in California and pretended to be in Afghanistan, which was an amazingly good time. Um, Because those guys had never seen creatures like us. So like we got there and showed up and they said, where's your tent? We said, what what tent? Well, where are you gonna sleep? Where do you sleep? Well, we sleep in this building, but we can't have females in this building. I can't lie. We bought a tent, but we bought the brightest pink tent we could, put it right in the middle of their outside. Um, That lasted two days, and then all their males were sent to sleep in tents outside next to our bright pink tent. Um, We got to the second team we were training, and they had heard the pink tent stories. They didn't ask tent questions. They said, well, where are you going to sleep? We played the same game. They're like, well, there's no room in this room. We're like, oh, yeah, we can just sleep under the cots. So us and the canines slept under the cots. I'm pretty sure that one of those Marines did not change his underwear for a week for fear that someone would walk in on him naked. Like, like it was startling for him. Um, but the, the training was excellent. They had Afghan locals who it was just like being in Afghanistan for us. So kind of same personality traits we already knew how to do it and it gave us a real opportunity to show here's how you use the cst teams before they had to figure it out in theater so we were excited to be able to set the marines up for some success off that well okay i had never i'd never heard about that before because as i understood it the 
at Fort Bragg or Fort Liberty than Fort Bragg where they trained um, that they they drew on women from all different branches. But so what you're telling me, and I'm hearing this for the first time, is that the Marines then decided to have their own Marine cultural support team. So initially at Fort Liberty, it was, there was Army and a smattering of Air Force. Um, the programs kind of expanded. Navy kind of did their own version of it at Coronado. And I will say, I could be wrong, but from what I heard from those Navy girls, Coronado did it better than anyone else. They came in with the attitude of, we are creating our personnel to do what we want, and we are going to put exactly the same amount of effort as we put into our men, um, which was very unique as compared to some of the others. Um, the Marines were translating other programs into CSTs, but what we were specifically doing is we were working with those Marines who already had the skills to teach their men how to use teams out of theater. So I worked with three or four Marine CSTs. I don't know which set of training they went through, but the Raven exercise, my specific job was to teach their male teams how to use the CST enabler package effectively once they got in theater. Oh my God, so I love it. You were teaching the men how to work with CST. Yes, ma'am. And how they would work with CSTs when they went to probably Afghanistan, probably what, in Helmand province or somewhere down there. Wow. Well, and it was interesting because they had this concept when we showed up that, okay, well, we're going to be medics. And neither of us who showed up were medics. Um, and right. I remember the very first day we went to do a, a mock patrol with these Marines, um, we immediately went and got the brightest colored headscarves we could find, because this is how we tell the locals, hi, we're here. And they're like, you can't wear that. You're going to make yourself a target. Uh-huh. Exactly. But everybody's going to know you're females. Exactly. It was very stressful for the Marines to think of walking around with us wearing these bright red, bright orange headscarves saying, hi, here we are. Um, but for us, it was important because I may only get a brief period of time to make that connection with a local woman who's going to give me intelligence. And I can't get that information unless she can find me in that moment. And I am so clearly distinctive that her men aren't going to keep her away from me. So I need to sort of have that visible display of who I am and why I'm there. Did you ever get any um, feedback uh, after the Marine CST teams deployed with them to Afghanistan on how it went? You know, I didn't, and I think I'm remiss. Um, I have had several functions where I have got to hang out with some of those same girls who were involved at the time, but I don't think we've ever talked about it. Be curious, be curious to find out because I bet that training, having with your experience 
training and going to train the Marines, um, the male Marines, how to work with CSTs was probably something that didn't happen that often. No, we were really lucky. And I think, I, I don't know if it was an exercise that was continued after we got those first groups, but the teams we got to work with really believed we were there for, quote, women's issues. And I do mean like feminine hygiene issues. Once we left there, they understood that we were there to gather information, to provide that search capacity, to open doors and get them into where they wanted to be in a really unique way. And so you could actually watch how the male teams used us at the beginning of the time we would attach to a team. Then a couple days later, once they'd actually seen what we do, they would kind of change how they would mission plan because we were a different kind of resource than they thought they were getting. And so if nothing else, that had to be useful. Absolutely. I would absolutely think that would um, be invaluable to them. Um, so after you did this um, and then you re uh, returned to your uh, officer candidate school, um, how was, I mean, you seem like you had a very specific path that was gave you um, your return being slightly better than a lot of CSTs who um, who returned maybe with some difficulty because they returned to their units and maybe even this happened for you when you were uh, when you returned to officer candidate school um, where I have heard uh, CSTs discuss how their service as CSTs was never part of their official record when they returned to their regular MOS, whether it was as an MP or, um, you know, a PAO or whatever their other field was. Can you speak so, to that? In the same way that the West Virginia Army National Guard being tiny can put additional strains on us, the West Virginia Army National Guard being tiny means everybody knows everybody's business. So when I got back to the state, um, a lot of people were aware of where I had been just because if you think about if 40 people are involved, even peripherally in the admin process, that's 1% of our National Guard, right? Because we only have 4,000. So right. There was an awareness. My boss, who I had been working for full-time orders before I deployed, I actually called from in theater. He was working a new project. I was already slated on that project before I ever hit the ground. Um, during that period of time when I first got back, I was already coordinating with the state because I needed to get back in the officer candidate class. And I literally went, stayed up in a hotel room and joined my class at midnight as I came off terminal leave because you're only allowed to miss so many hours and it just happened to fall that way in the, the training schedule. Um, so I really kind of came back in very quickly and my state leveraged a lot of the information and skills that I had as quickly as possible, as far as, okay, great. You just got off a of deployment. We've got this unit who's going to deploy to work with special operations. So Go give them the information that just came out of your head. Um, 
again, my full-time boss knew what I had done and would leverage it anytime he could, because that was a thing he was good at. Our special right. operations community treated me amazingly well. Um, we have a gentleman who he's a general now in, in West Virginia. He was a colonel at the time. And he immediately adopted me as one of his own and treated me exactly like he would treat his guys. So that was a very unique experience that most of the CSTs didn't have. Um, right. Now, I did have some of the same lack of support problems. So there is no post-deployment anything for the CST program. Hi, congratulations. Thank you for coming home. Give us your stuff. Go away now. Um, and that could have been difficult. Fortunately, I am a rugby player. And the Fort Bragg rugby team actually adopted me for about a month. Um, when I was on terminal leave, I had gone through a bad divorce while I was in Afghanistan. Literally came home to a house with no furniture and a friend of mine taking care of my dogs. Fort Bragg rugby team adopted me, got me out on the pitch, actually kept me there for an extra three weeks while I was getting everything sorted out at home, gave me that community. So when I reintegrated, I was coming from a place surrounded by, you know, 40, 50 really supportive teammates who all understood what it meant to be in the military and be deployed. That that was a grace that most of us didn't get. I feel in part that West Virginia, given its size and the size of, of their National Guard, uh, and also your combined with your own, uh, you know, incredible service and abilities, um, sort of, I mean, while they both used you as much as they could, your knowledge, but they also helped as much as they could to make the um, to support your transition along oh, with the absolutely. rugby team. Any, anything yeah. I needed that West Virginia could possibly give me, do for me, or assist me with, whether it was their job or not, they did for my entire deployment. And if the time change didn't work out and I had to call somebody at three o'clock in the morning who was an M-Day soldier who wouldn't normally be able to help me at that time, they found a way. The, the West Virginia Army National Guard was amazing for me and supportive me in my deployment. So um, I guess, and I, I've heard this in a lot of uh, different stories from women who have returned, uh, whether they be lionesses um, or, women who served in different in, in combat capacities in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, that, you know, a lot of the times they're, they were pulled out of one MOS to serve in these special duties. And then they would return to the MOS and maybe return home. And what they had done would not be on their official records. And if they left service, it wouldn't be on their DD-214 form, which made getting whatever often health care they needed from the VA uh, difficulty and that very difficult. And that this kind of <clears throat> problem just extended at, even as more women were in FET teams and CST teams and things were more complex, but you still had this gap 
in the system that made it difficult for women to access full health care benefits like their male counterparts. Um, had you heard of that amongst women you knew or served with? Absolutely. Um, one of the big things we've talked a lot amongst the community about is that, one, what awards you received at certain times are often used as part of the evaluative criteria as to what you were doing. So if you're part of a conventional unit or you're assigned to a unit, very often, if you if you're directly shot at, you may receive, you know, a, a CIB if you're infantry or CAB, the, the combat action badge, you may receive those things. However, your unit has to put you in for those things. If you're attached to one unit, then loaned out to another unit, who then details you to another unit, that paperwork doesn't happen. Um, and so based on the military's criteria, there's no documentation that that experience ever happened. Um, because it's second, third, fourth order effects that don't tri trickle back through the paperwork. Um, that was huge, particularly for our women who did have injuries, who did have PTSD coming out of direct combat experiences that were never documented on paper because a lot of times their units really couldn't or they ran the risk of running afoul of the combat exclusion and being outside of policy. Um, very simple things that normally would be documented because it gets documented for the whole unit. For example, when you know I went to Iraq, everything that was awarded to the unit is awarded in a big list of all the names and then the information is at the top of the page. Okay, that's different when you're on a two-man team attached to a six-man team attached, you know, under the command of infantry that you're, you're several orders of effect out. And that was significant. Um, the other thing we talked about was, and this was part of the uh, medical research study I helped out with, was the fact that a lot of the back-end assistance was not designed for us. Um, the funniest briefing I get to set in every time I got deployed, and the CSTs were no exception, is I came home, I went throughout processing, I got to sit in this great briefing as to how to address erectile dysfunction in a post-combat environment. <laughs> this was not a concern I had, but I got to spend 30 right. minutes being trained how to solve the problem. <laughs> oh boy that is one of the unique things about my time in the military is when I joined the United States military and I kid you not women were required to go in and shower a certain number of times a day on every field problem because and I'm not kidding you here women on their menstrual cycle could attract bears according to the manual so if I was on a field problem in the desert in California, I had to go shower so as not to attract bears. Um, the Army has obviously come light years since the bear fear. 
But believe it or not, when we talked about the combat integration handbook, that particular policy actually came back up. And I actually had a male officer who was concerned about integrating women into his infantry because bears. Unbelievable. Oh, boy. I hope you got that struck. Yeah, that that did not make the final cut of the handbook. In fact, the, the bear fears were resolved, and we think we're safe now. Well, Chris, this has been amazing, and I have just two uh, more sort of questions or points that I want to get your response to. The first is, as I understand it, and I still find this hard to believe, um, I there's not an actual pin. I know this from um, all, speaking with all the women, you know, who I know who've served as lioness, um, which actually includes you because you served in that capacity to some extent during your tour in Iraq, whether they called you that or not. Um, but there's no there's no lioness pin saying you served as that. As I understand it, nor is there an FET pin saying you served as that or a cultural support pin. And I know that the services are great at giving pins when you do special things. I would think even retrospectively at this point, it would be really valuable for women who served in these positions to have some kind of pin that designates that part of their service. Does it make any difference at this point? You know, it's funny, in the same way that we developed our own training and, you know, went out and learned to do the CST interactions on our own and then got in country and kind of developed our own program plans, we have adopted our own symbol. So all of the CSTs um, have the Valkyrie wings that we have on our T-shirts and our hats, and we all know. And um, a matter of fact, I think two or three of our girls just got a tattoo recently. Um, but we have developed those symbols of our teams on our own and for ourselves. And that, I think, is one of the amazing things about these women's teams is we, we ensured we got the training. We ensured we have gotten the care we needed. We ensure we maintain a community. So as great as it would be to have the military do that, we have sort of taken care of it amongst ourselves. That's fantastic to hear. And I also, I mean, you know, if you want to get something done, especially if you're a woman, a woman and you want to get it done on your on for other women as well, you have to do it yourself. We all know that. That's just a fact. And you guys did it. That's fantastic. I, I had not heard that, and I'm thrilled to hear it. Um, and to the extent that that can ever help with anyone um, in terms of their forms, get whatever assistance or anything that they need, you know, fantastic. But definitely, I always think there is something that needs to be recognized, even if it's retrospectively. We actually, the CST program, made sure that all of us have 
the skill set identifier on our DD214s. Um, it's the it's called a PDSI, and it's the I believe it's a five kilo I think, and it identifies us as a member of a CST team, and that is on all of our records. And anyone who goes through their files and finds that it's missing, um, we actually have a group of us who will help you get it. So we have a couple of ladies who are admin gurus. They get right on that and make sure that's in your file. So I don't know about everyone else, but the CSTs have in fact developed um, that training identifier that covers that we were part of the program and we can get that on our files. Well, that's fantastic. I think I know um, uh, some uh, women who served as blindness who would probably like to find out how you did that, but that'll be a separate um, conversation. Um, but again, I'd just like to end this program with one thought and maybe Chris, you can give me your response and or Sean. One of the things that I've just, as I've you sort of you go through the arc of this history. I mean, now is it, it's sort of an interesting time to look back at everything that happened in Iraq and Afghanistan and how the role of women has changed and how it, you know, it sort of started off with boots on the ground, lioness, uh, marine lioness, army lioness, uh, female engagement teams, both army and marines, and then to CSTs. Um, Part of it was all language because women were were only attached, not assigned. And that seemed to, you know, it was only until in 2013 when I guess they dissolved that. But um, I guess that ambiguity was uh, just something tricky that everyone had to bear with during that, you know, during the arc of uh, service both in Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, fortunately, now that's gone. But I mean, I think, you know, um, the Linus, the Fets, and then the cultural sport teams, I mean, you are the women who helped dissolve that. You know, and that's huge. The, the tradition of women in the military, and particularly those not recognized throughout history, is so common. I mean, one of the greatest Chinese pirates ever to live was a woman. One of the greatest Hun generals was a woman. You see women from the earliest war times through the Civil War and throughout, you know, modern history. You've got the night witches. You've got all of these women who, in times where their countries needed them, step up and do the job. Uh, one of the unique things is, though they're not always recognized, they do always seem to somehow form their own communities and do what women do well, which is take care of and support each other. And I think you see that again when you start looking at the connections between the FETs, Lioness programs, CSTs, um, how we all kind of support each other. You'll find us, we do two or three outreach events every year for the CSTs, and we all, always invite all of the other groups to come join us. 
Um, we do multiple mental health things as a group and invite the others to come join us. That that community of care and support is so unique to these women who have done this forever. And I, I like the fact that that's something we see again with this group. And I think a, a really wonderful note to end this on, um, this has been an incredible, I was gonna say hour, it's more than an hour at this point, but every minute worth it. Thank you so much, Chris. I can't tell you what it means to have you on here relaying your experience directly and giving everyone the chance to hear and understand the history from someone who was there, who participated and who lived it. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate your participation. And on behalf of the Veterans Breakfast Club, I really wanna thank you so much for giving us your time. This is incredibly valuable. Well, thank John? you. Thank you guys for getting these stories out there. Just echoing absolutely. you, Daria. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's our our pleasure. It's an honor uh, to our audience. Uh, again, like, share, subscribe, uh, ring the bell on YouTube. You find this on YouTube, or come over and uh, download it on podcast platform. Uh, hit us up at VBC Sean S H A U N at VeteransBreakfastClub.org if you have any thoughts, comments, questions, uh, or ideas. Uh, always happy to hear from our audience. Um, Daria, uh, always a pleasure. We have several more of these episodes planned. Uh, so looking forward to more. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, everyone. And thank you again, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Absolutely. Thanks, guys.